If you have your Bible this morning, please turn to John chapter 9 with me. Uh, one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, tells about going uh, on vacation with his family. And he says, remember as a kid, uh, when you would go on vacation, you'd ask yourself, why is dad always grumpy? And he said, now I understand. Uh, we took our uh, Memorial Day trip a little bit early this year. We went on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and spent the weekend in Branson. And uh, I, I think I was pretty well behaved for, uh, for a dad with kids. But uh, we went to Branson, or, or as Chandler liked to call it, uh, our hotel room, Branson's house. He's still uh, kind of learning geography. Uh, we really, it was a really good trip for, for memory making, and we got to do a lot of new things. Uh, Chandler got to sleep in a bed rather than a pack and play or a crib like he usually does for the first time. He got to sleep in a bed, and uh, that explained the slump that we heard about 4 a.m. the first night as he rolled off the bed uh, onto the floor and, and didn't wake up, just took it in stride. Uh, I got to experience, uh, we got to experience as a family, the water rides at Silver Dollar City for the first time, and uh, Chandler just shrieked the entire time, and that was so fun to do that. Uh, but no matter how much vacation you have, uh, it seems like your kids always want more. For Chandler, uh, it was more of the froggy pool uh, at our hotel, which is really just a pool with a frog-shaped slide. Uh, but when the dreaded time came to say, okay, buddy, it's, it's time to go, uh, the moment I was expecting the entire time happened, uh, I want to go back, I want to go back to the froggy pool. Uh, and and he, he just kind of cried for a while. He was worn out from the weekend and, and wanted to be in this uh, pool, wanted this trip to continue. And so for, what, uh, for us was a, a comical sign of a well-spent vacation for him was on the brink of the end of the world. In fact, I would venture to guess that given a couple of years in a situation like this, I would ex- fully expect to hear those words that every kid from the creation of the world has said at one point or another, That's not fair. To which every parent from the beginning of creation has responded what? Life's not fair. Uh, This morning as we continue our series that we've been going through this summer, uh, this series Christian Atheist, I want to look at this idea of fairness. This idea of Christian Atheist, if you haven't been with us so far, uh, comes from a book by Pastor Craig Groeschel and comes with the tagline, When you believe in God, but live as if he doesn't exist. And so we've been looking at these areas of our lives as Christians or as people who profess belief in God, belief in Christ, these areas where we haven't really fully uh, allowed ourselves to be transformed in his likeness. And so this morning I wanted to look at the issue of when you believe in God but don't think he's fair. And it really goes back to the age-old issue of hardship and suffering. Like I mentioned during the communion meditation, those moments like Psalm 73 where we look around and we see the wicked prospering while the righteous suffer. We ask the question or we ponder the issue, if God is fair, then why does it seem like the bad people so often prosper even as the faithful are enduring hardship and difficulty? If God is fair, why doesn't he do something about all of the injustices in the world? And so the conclusion that we often end up coming to is that either God isn't fair, he isn't good, or he's powerless. Or to put it another way, either God isn't all-loving or he isn't all-powerful, or he simply just isn't fair. We've all had experiences where we've wrestled through this kind of issue, 
Uh, this, these times we ask God, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? Why must I endure this? And these are, of course, much more serious issues than missing more time at the froggy pool. Uh, these are times where we struggle with the core of our faith, to ask the core questions uh, of God. They really te- test our, our ability to endure during these times of difficulty. Maybe it's a time where you've prayed uh, for something to get better. Maybe your health, maybe the health of a loved one. Uh, but rather than get better, it, it only got worse. Maybe you're enduring suffering, uh, not because of any fault of your own, but the sinful actions of someone else. A betrayal. Uh, something that someone did to hurt you uh, in a profound way. Maybe you've raised your children the best you could, uh, but now they, as they've gotten older, have drifted further and further from God. Maybe you li- you've lived purely. You've lived as God's Word calls you to in singleness, and you desire to be married, and you've begged God for a spouse, but still you're still alone. Maybe you've been just looking for a good reason behind your suffering. Uh, asking the tough questions, wrestling through the tough issues, trying to be faithful in the process, yet it's just taking a toll on your faith. For me, uh, these kinds of areas uh, of, of suffering and, thought, and these kinds of thoughts uh, come a lot on our second Sunday of the month. If you've been with us for a while, you know that the second Sunday of every month, we take time to pray for the persecuted church. And as Doug in this service or Don in the second service will share these stories Uh, about people enduring hardship because of their faith. I just look at those things and I think, God, why don't you do something to stop that? Why are these people who have given up so much suffering so harshly? Why do I deserve to live where I do in freedom and comfort when they are so much more faithful than I am in many ways? But we know that's that's not really how the world works. And we also know, though, that suffering is not a new reality. From the moment that sin entered the world, suffering was hot on its coattails, wreaking havoc among God's creation. Of course, we see many of these instances throughout Scripture, the prime example being Job, which through 42 chapters chronicles uh, this, this endurance that he has during this time of testing and struggle as they ask the tough questions about suffering. But I don't want to look at Job's story this morning. I want to look at a man who is a little bit lesser known, uh, but also deals with his share of hardship. Uh, We see his story in John uh, chapter 9, and there's lots of people who experience hardship and suffering in the Bible. Many times, though, we don't get to hear their stories, particularly as people in the Gospels are being healed or or Jesus is casting demons out of them, restoring them in some way. Uh, We see the restoration take place, and they go on their way, and we don't really get to see much more of their story. But in John chapter 9, we get to see uh, the story behind the suffering. And it's the story of a man who was born blind. Look with me in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are two important details uh, about this man that we see right up front. Uh, First is that he was blind. Uh, He's sitting outside the temple 
begging for uh, his living, begging for the charity of others. There's not much other else that he could do. Uh, he's out of work. He's unable. He doesn't have many skills because of his blindness. He survives really off the generosity of others. But even more problematic than being just blind was the detail that this man was blind from birth. Uh, this was a ver- relatively common problem in Jesus' time uh, with the lack of proper birth hygiene, no prenatal vitamins or ultrasounds or checkups or all the things that we have at our disposal. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for people to beca- be blind uh, from birth. And, but also, uh, not just commenting on the, the social health of the time, this is a comment on the severity of this man's situation. We see that this is not a, a trauma that happened that could be healed given the right uh, person to come along, the right expertise. This is not a, a situation where something suddenly happened that might recover gradually over time. It was one thing to heal a blind person. In fact, that had been done before here and there in the Old Testament. But for a person to be healed blind from birth, it just didn't happen. Verse 32 uh, It says, nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. Uh, Literally, it says, not from of old or from the world's beginning. Uh, Never has this happened before that somebody born blind has recovered their sight. But that, of course, is not about to stop Jesus. Uh, He has a plan. But in this, before we get to Jesus' plan, I I think we learn something about the truth of God here. The truth of God, even in the midst of our suffering, that God cares when we hurt. It would have been easy for Jesus to just walk by this man. Jesus didn't heal everybody uh, he came across in the Gospels. It would have been entirely within his rights to walk on by. We've all done it. Uh, We've all seen somebody in need and and chose to go the other direction to our shame. Uh, This man, even being blind, we could have walked right on by and he wouldn't even have known the difference. But that's not the way Jesus handles hurting people. Jesus would often look outcasts in the eye. He would touch their diseased skin. He would kneel down to look in their faces when they couldn't stand. The faces that so many others would just simply avoid as they went upon their way. Matthew 9, 36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I think this is so characteristic of how Jesus often dealt with people, hurting people. Uh, This word, had compassion, is one of my favorite Greek words just because of the way it sounds, splonknidzomai. Say that with me, splonknidzomai. Now you know some Greek. Use it to your advantage. Uh, But this word, to, to feel compassion, is to literally to feel it in your stomach or your intestines, this idea of a deep rooted, uh, hard, hard uh, look at, at the way the world works. This pain that Jesus felt wasn't just a cursory pain, but one that he felt in his gut for hurting people. But what was worse, I think, for Jesus in the particular instance of this man, wasn't that just he was born blind, but that many would have revealed or would have thought of, of him as, uh, as one who was cursed as a result. Uh, This question that we see in the very beginning, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind, reveals this world view. The implication is that something something that someone had done caused this suffering to happen. 
If it was a popular thought or, or theology, almost second nature, it would have been as natural for many in that time as saying the sky is blue. That where sin occurred, where suffering occurred, uh, sin had to, be, had to take place first. There's this direct link between suffering and sin. And so what that means for this man is that not only was he blind, but as he depended on the charity and generosity of others walking by him, he would have been viewed as cursed, as one who by his own fault brought this upon himself. I'm not really sure how that works for a man born blind, what he could have possibly done to sin to cause this suffering, but the logic was beside the point. They just simply knew that where suffering was occurring, sin had to occur first. And so it's here that we really get a sense of this poor man's plight. Not only is he blind, but everyone thought he was a sinner, and a sinner from the point before he was even born. He was cursed. He was an outcast. But Jesus clarifies this man's situation. He says it wasn't as a result of sin, but that this man was born blind, so that God might be glorified. There's a syndrome uh, that's actually a recognized syndrome called hero syndrome. And in this syndrome, people who have it will often cause uh, disastrous things to take place so that they could kind of ride in and save the day. You see it a lot in civil servants. Uh, for example, a fireman who's also an arsonist, so that he can set a fire and then come and put it out and be hailed as the hero. And at first glance, it almost looks like Jesus is ascribing to God this kind of hero syndrome. Nothing happened to cause this man to be born blind other than the fact that God wanted to use it for his glory. And it makes God sound kind of like a monster, that for years God would cause this man to suffer, uh, for decades even, uh, to suffer and to be viewed as others to be cursed just simply so God could ride in and save the day. It sounds cruel. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying that God caused this man to be blind, but rather that he could redeem it. Jesus is saying, I'm not primarily concerned with how he got this way, but that God is about to be glorified through his healing. To put it another way, the disciples are saying, Jesus, how did you get this way? And Jesus is flipping that and saying, rather, what can we do for him? There's a chance to change this tragic way of life into something that really speaks of God's heart. But then Jesus chooses to do something really weird. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I'm about to bring light into this man's darkness. But then he... The disciples think, oh, that's classy, Jesus. Jesus just, just hawks one right in the dirt, and he begins to mix his spit with this mud. And he puts this over the man's eyes. And I'm not 100% sure on why he does this, but I think he's making a statement here. Spit, not surprisingly, is regarded as unclean in Jesus' world. And I think what Jesus is showing is in this instance, that he can use something that is, that is messy, that is unclean. He can use the messy circumstances of our lives and use them to bring about healing. I think of a, a funeral I did not too uh, long ago uh, where a, wi- a man lost his wife somewhat uh, unexpectedly. And, and in talking with him, 
he said, for, for many, many months now, I've been kind of angry with God and wrestling with God because I've been looking for a job kind of on the West Coast. I, I know I have the experience, I have the education, I just couldn't figure out why God was not allowing these doors to be opened. But after his wife, pa- wife passed away, he said, I, I realize now that God needed me to be here. He needed be, me to be with my, my family, to be around the people that loved me so that he could walk me through this time. And I think Jesus is kind of doing the same thing in this man's circumstances, saying, you know, I, I know your life has been hard. You've been blind from birth. You've been viewed as an outcast, as a sinner. But I'm going to take those messy circumstances, much like this mud, and I'm going to use it to bring about healing and restoration. After putting the mud on Jesus' eyes, he sends him uh, to wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he simply says, simply says, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. <laughs> Talk about your understatement. This man who had never seen anything a day in his life suddenly has his eyes open for the very first time. I mean, just think about what this moment would have been like for this man, that he came home seeing. I want, I want to kind of do a demonstration with you uh, for a moment. I, I want you to, to close your eyes and cover them with your hands. I'll, I'll tell you when to uncover them. Uh, don't push too hard. You'll start to see like poor kids' fireworks. Uh, but, but just do this. You're, you're not too cool. No one's looking around. They all have their eyes covered. Uh, for years, for decades, this man would have lived like this. Total, crushing, complete darkness he would have never seen the sky he would have never seen the ground never seen nature never seen the face of his loved ones never seen his parents but worse than that he would have been an outcast more than just a physical defect he would have faced judgment been called a sinner been labeled cursed by god he wouldn't be able to enter the temple to work to care for himself Bad enough that he was practically helpless, but also the stigma, he would have been viewed like a felon. You did wrong, you got judged, it serves you right. But then Jesus comes along and changes everything. That he's not a sinner. That he's not cursed. But that rather he can be used to glorify. You can open your eyes. After opening this man's eyes, you would think... Even now, as your eyes are adjusting, you imagine a little bit what he would have experienced. You'd think there would be a celebration, a party. All of his friends would have gathered around him uh, celebrating. But that's not what happens. Because the problem was that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And by mixing that spit with the mud, it would have been viewed as work, which was a big no-no in the eyes of the religious leaders. And so they put this man... Rather than giving him a party, they put him on trial. And I'm not going to go into all of that this morning, though I would encourage you to read the rest of this chapter this week on your own. But I want to look at snippets of that trial process to point, about, to point out the very real, tr- real truth about how God, how God uses our suffering. You see, God can use our circumstances to reveal that which we need to see the most in times of hardship. That what we need to see more than anything in times of difficulty is Him. Listen to the progression of this man's understanding of just who Jesus is. 
as they put this man on, on trial, not only has his eyes been opened physically, but spiritually he becomes, begins to become more aware as well. He begins to understand more of who Jesus is. In verse 11, they ask this man how his eyes were opened, and he replies, the man they call Jesus. Verse 17, the Pharisees ask who he thinks Jesus is, and he says he is a prophet. He's moved from, from a man to a prophet, to one who is who's being the mouthpiece of God. Finally, all the way down in verse 38, when Jesus finally reveals himself to the man, he hadn't seen Jesus prior to this point. Jesus sent him away for the healing. Jesus reveals himself, and it says, The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped worshiped him. Through the course of this man's story, we see him from blind and labeled a sinner, an outcast, cursed by God, to one who recognizes Jesus and his carnality, that, that there's this man, Jesus, who did something in his life, who goes from man to prophet, one who is holy, one who is set apart, one who speaks the very words of God, until finally he comes in the end to acknowledge him as Lord and worships him in his belief. You see, most often, more often than not, our suffering, the thing that we accuse God of not being fair in, is the very thing in which we see His hand most at work. More often than not, our suffering is the very area of our lives in which we see God most at work. How many of you uh, have, have felt closest to God in times of hardship? When things are really tough, that's when you feel closest to God. Maybe it was a divorce or a death or a miscarriage or the loss of a job or or battling through a cancer diagnosis. Many of you, through times like these, would attest that the moments where you felt closest to God than ever in your life was during those days. The times that we often accuse God of being the most unfair, the most uncaring about our circumstances, are often the times that we recognize Him the most and draw closest to Him. But returning to that original issue, this idea of when you believe in God but don't think He's fair, I have to ask the question, was God being fair to this blind guy? As a preacher, you probably expect expect me to say yes. But in all honesty, I, I don't think God was fair to this guy. But the reason why might surprise you. I, I understand. Uh, we often have these thoughts. And we think that God is not being fair. We, we rehearse this kind of line. Uh, we say things like, it's just not fair. I'm a good person. I didn't do anything to deserve this. But the one flaw with this kind of defense is that I'm not a good person. And neither are you. You see, this man, just like all of us, was a sinner. It wasn't his sin that caused him to be born blind, but he was a sinner nonetheless. Every person to ever walk the earth, except for one, has opened themselves to the devastating effects of sin. There's nothing that this man had done, nothing that he could do, nothing that he could offer to say, I deserve to be healed. 
It's within my privilege and my right to have my eyes open. And in the same way, there's nothing that we could say, nothing that any of us have done, nothing that we could offer to God to say, God, I am worthy of being saved. We offer our best tries. We say, God, I, I've, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be kind. I've, I've gone to church uh, when I didn't have other things going on. I volunteered to help the needy. I've, I've been good to my wife or my husband and my kids. I, I never ran around on them. But have you ever sinned? Even one sin is enough to condemn. You see, but God, by His very nature, is so perfect, so holy, so not us, that the only way that we can be with Him is to be per- perfect as well. And since He is the source of all life, to be apart from Him is to be condemned to death. Romans 6.23 says very clearly, for the wages of sin is death. When we sin, the thing that we earn is death. Because someone sinned, someone had to die. But in His mercy, God sent Jesus to die in our place. To be the sacrifice for our sins. See, what is fair is that we should have died for what we had done. Aren't you glad that God isn't fair? Romans 6.23 again says, The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the verse doesn't end there. It continues, But the gift of God is eternal life. Bad things do happen to good people. But Jesus' story The ultimate good news story is that bad things happened to him so that good things could happen to us. We're so quick, so often, to ask why something happens, but rarely do we ask ourselves why God would choose to bless us with good things when we deserve bad. For people who are sinful, people who deserve death, God gave us what was most precious to him. And that's simply not fair. It's grace. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. God's not fair. He's just. And in His justice... He justified us through the death of His Son. All of us, at least occasionally as Christian atheists, have our doubts and our questions about God. But just like this blind guy who was healed, we don't have to understand everything to believe. If this guy waited to have all of the answers, to have all of the questions answered, to have all of the right things in place before he opened himself to healing. If he asked Jesus things like, why are, why are you spitting on my eyes? Why do I have to go to that pool? Why, why can't you just snap your fingers? Why was I born blind? If this man would have waited for all of his questions to be answered, he could have very well spent the rest of his life blind. This morning, if you're waiting for all of your questions to be answered, before taking a step of faith, 
you'll never, you'll likely never experience the healing of Jesus on the sin in your life. Verse 24, uh, the Pharisees called this blind man into their midst. It says, the second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. The man replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. This morning, some of you are probably wrestling with those tough issues of life. Why you're enduring certain hardships, why you lost your husband, why you lost your wife, why your child is far from God, all the different things we could unpack. And you're trying to to find answers to those questions, withholding from God your life until He can give you a satisfactory response. But I want to encourage you with the example of this blind man. He says, I don't have all the answers. I don't know completely who Jesus is. But one thing I know is I see the results of his work in my life. One thing I know is that I I couldn't see before and I can see now. And so if you're waiting for Jesus to answer all those questions before you're obedient, you're probably going to keep waiting. Because Jesus often calls us to obedience before understanding. And so this morning, I want to simply encourage you that if you don't have all the answers, <laughs> number one, join the club. There's lots of us. But number two, to step out in faith regardless. To step out in faith saying, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing in my life, but I believe that you can work it for good. So I want to give my life to you so that you can use it for your glory. That applies whether you've followed Jesus for many years or whether you've never taken that step the first step in faith. So this morning I want to encourage you, if that's something that you need to do, to take a step and say, Jesus, I don't know where this journey is heading, but I know that you're with me, and I know that I can trust you even when I don't understand you. We want to encourage you in that this morning. I'll be up front. Some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. Whether it's just an encouragement and hardship you're dealing with right now, Uh, or a walk that you need to begin with Jesus. We'd love to help you in that this morning. As we look at this man, we see that his life was used to glorify God. We see that God used his circumstances to bring about a proclamation of who he is. And so this morning, I I want to encourage you not to wait, because who, who knows what God could do when you choose to turn your life over to him and how you can glorify him through it. Let's pray. Father God, so often, even as Christians, we wrestle with this idea of fairness. We wrestle with this idea of why people who don't follow you so often have prosperous lives. And that while we are faithful to you, endure hardship and suffering. We're told in Scripture that everyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so God, we know that even giving our lives to you, that we're not exempt from suffering. Instead, uh, we should actually expect it. But God, that doesn't make the sting any less real. 
And so, God, I pray for those of us in this room that are wrestling this, with this issue of you not being fair, that you would open our eyes to who you truly are, a God who cares in our suffering, one who came to be a part of it, who knelt down in the dirt and the dust to look us when we are broken in the eyes and to communicate your love to us. God, we know that you're not fair because the cross is not fair. That where we deserve death, where we deserve destruction, where we deserve to feel the weight of our sin, you rather took it upon yourself, sending your son to die in our place. And so, God, we thank you that you're not fair, but rather that you are gracious. And God, as we marvel in this grace that has been placed on our lives, we likewise would be gracious to others so that others might see your glory and realize who you are in the midst of hardship. We pray these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.